and three, two, one, clap. Close enough. <laughs> Welcome back, collective. Kelly is back. We're going to talk about some things and probably, you know, it'll be depressing. The standard. <laughs> consistently depressing you're welcome i mean i guess the only good thing is i haven't killed any of my plants in quarantine so that's happy news there you guys go <laughs> oh i did drop my aloe plant into my laundry basket opening my window so there was an almost casualty like oh thank god i had done laundry recently Otherwise, it would have been so much worse. So much worse. It would have been, like, dirt everywhere. I would have had to, like, go outside and shake out all my clothes. It, uh. It's quarantine. No one sees you. Why do you, you don't, you don't have to put pants on if you want. That is actually, like, that's what people don't realize. Quarantine is a benefit in so many ways. One, you get to find out how many t-shirts you own. You just keep changing t-shirts. If you still got t-shirts, you don't have to do laundry. Two, how creative can you cook things with the minimal amount of ingredients and fucks given? Because when in doubt, pasta or rice, throw some veggies in there. You don't eat a protein. You're good. Unless you got eggs and then you could just like fry an egg, throw it in there. You're good. Oh, yeah. I loved watching. I watched Bon Appetit's All the Ways You Could Cook an Egg. It was great. So many ideas. So many weird ways to cook an egg. And it's good because, you know... In quarantine, we're all a little broke. Eggs are still cheap. It's great. I mean, I have... I I've started bread making, so I feel like I'm certainly now into this full quarantine stereotype. I, I gotta make some banana bread just to guarantee I'm that basic banana bread bitch like everybody else. Well, it's, you know why everyone makes banana bread? Everybody bought bananas because they're easy to snack. They forgot about them. They're black now. Fact. Uh, two, it's really fucking hard to mess up banana bread. Mm hmm I have the best banana bread recipe that 
you know how it you know it's the best is the cookbook page has literally so many splashes of batter on it <laughs> so and this is I think I've shared the recipe on when I do the recipe of the week but it's legitimately what my family's always made and everyone's told me they're like it's so good it's because I always put extra bananas in there well it's it's great because so say you freeze your bananas like I do when they go black so that whenever you're ready to make them well then you got a frozen banana what are you gonna do pop it in the microwave for 10 seconds and uh it'll be like you kind of want to do it till it's it's starting to like defrost keep it doing it in the microwave because it kind of heats up any any if you have butter or anything it melts it and get, makes it more cohesive but the banana i'll keep it moist so i always add an extra banana for whatever they say and it's great mm -hmm. also to open a frozen banana use a butter knife along the outside of it um the larger curve because then you can just pop it out and you don't get your hands as dirty yeah this is why it's called the cult of domesticity sometimes you get the domestic tips on the podcast not just on the social media <laughs> Yeah, extra banana, extra moisture, and you know the frozen bananas. It's easy enough, and that way they're all they're they're still contained, and you don't have to put them in a bag, cause fuck that. <laughs> also, I do not own any. I don't have any plastic bags really, cause I don't use them. Um, but yeah, so today we're gonna talk about war. Which war? So many wars. The Korean War. <laughs> Sadly, so many to choose from. And this is going to be like an intro to the Korean War because obviously it's a very in-depth topic. There's a bunch of history podcasts that I'm sure have done it. Check them out if you want to go more in-depth. But as you know, I, I do plan to cover other things that happened during the Korean War. So I figured let's do an overview, especially because... Especially because Korea politically is so fascinating. It, oh, I live for it. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, Kim Jong-un is definitely alive and definitely doesn't have gout. He definitely doesn't have gout in a country that's starving. So... Let's talk about Korea before the war. It was actually controlled by Imperial Japan because, and they took over from the Chinese because, yeah, they did that shit. As a lot of people who only study European history don't think about, there are many different empires, many different Asian countries expanded, contracted, all of that. So during the first Sino-Japanese War, which was 1894 to 95 there was a short Korean empire and after the Japanese def Ugh. accidentally closed something that was terrifying thought I stopped recording um, <laughs> I hit I hit the mouse and it closed it but it's still recording so we're good um, so 
Then we have Japan defeating Russia in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. That's when Japan was like, hey, Korea, you're going to be a protectorate. <laughs> that, that means, hey, you want to be a little colony? And then we'll slowly incorporate you. They actually... Yeah. If you see protectorate, you go, okay, so colony. Got it. Yeah. They actually annexed it with the Japan-Korea Annexation Treaty in 1910. So with that, we see many of the Korean nationalists fleeing the country. And at that point, it's still one peninsula. It's not divided. They go on to found the provisional government of the Republic of Korea in 1919 in nationalist China because also at this point China's starting to go through a civil war there's a lot of things happening there and not going to go deeply into it so it, just because it's, it's a lot it's a lot I took an entire class on modern China it's a lot so they didn't get international recognition because they wanted to like kind of kickstart this so they could retake their country back from Japan. And they really had a pretty contentious relationship with the US found like US based founding president. So there's a couple nationalist groups going on. You have Sigma and Rhee, who will come up again. And so the groups are fighting within each other. So it's hard to kickstart a, a revolution if everybody cannot agree on certain things on top of that from 1919 to 1925 and continuing later korean communists inside the country led an internal and external warfare against the japanese so you see them trying to start a revolution while in china the nationalist national Evolutionary Army and the Communist People's Liberation Army helped to organize the Korean refugees against the Japanese military. So they're really trying to kick Imperial Japan out. And because the Japanese at this point are also occupying parts of China because it's a peninsula, you know, you can go up and be like, hey, cool. The nationalist backed Koreans led by Yi Pong Sok fought in the Burma campaign. And the communists were led by Kim Il-sung. And they fought the Japanese in Korea and Manchuria. So you see the Koreans working with the Chinese throughout this to really kick Japan off the continent. However, at the Cairo conference in, after World War II in November 1943, China, the United Kingdom, and the U.S. all decided in due course, quote, or decide that, quote, in due course, Korea shall become free and independent, end quote. So this is where we get the division, shall we say. So if studiers of World War II know the Tehran Conference and then the Yalta Conference are kind of where the end of the war, basically everything's starting to get hashed out. The Soviet Union at these conferences, a.k.a. Stalin, uh, said, okay, we're going to come into the Pacific War within three months of victory in Europe, which makes sense because Stalin's solution to a lot of problems with fighting the Nazis was to just throw people at it. 
which luckily for the Soviet Union, they had the enough people, but it made them fighting fighting Japan harder for them. So they declared war uh, on Japan on August 9th, 1945, three days after the bombing of Hiroshima. So why am I mentioning the Soviets? Yeah? So... Right? They're like, oh, we're coming in, guys. I mean, the th- there's debates on whether or not the second bombing stopped the war or they were actually going to surrender after the first. So, I mean, it's a good show that they were going to go in there, but it was everybody was like, eh, you really want to do this? And especially after the second one, they were like, oh, we, we tap out. The Japanese tapped out. But because they declared war on the Japanese, they, on August 10th, moved in to occupy the northern part of the Korean Peninsula. And they determined that they were going to do occupying zones, like they did with Germany. Why in Korea? Doesn't really make sense to me, but it's what they decided. So, in in Washington, the U.S. colonels, uh, Dean Rusk and Charles H. Bonsteel III, great name, were in charge of denied, dividing the peninsula into the occupation zones between the Soviets and the U.S. on the 38th parallel. Why 38th parallel, are you wondering? Because <laughs> it's, it's, if you look at it, it's like so random to pick this, but Husk said, quote, even though it was further north than could be realistically reached by U.S. forces. In the event of a Soviet disagreement, we felt it was important to include the capital of Korea in the area of responsibility of American troops. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, continuing, uh, faced with the scarcity of U.S. forces immediately available and the time and space factors, it would make it difficult to reach very far north before the Soviet troops could enter that area. End quote. So it's basically... We'll put it further north to give us a buffer zone, but we also get, like, Seoul. Mm-hmm. But it's it's very much a, this looks good kind of response. <laughs> um, and this would be incorporated into the Japanese surrender on August 15th. So, really, the Russians battled the so uh the japanese technically for like six days yeah stalin actually agrees to the halt at to halt at the 38th parallel to have uh, the meeting and determine that if this is what they wanted and on september 8th, 1945, the U.S. Lieutenant General John R. Hodge, Hodge arrived in Incheon. Again, I don't speak Korean. I should have mentioned this. I don't speak any Korean. I don't speak any Eastern Asian languages. I am doing my best. <laughs> I'm going to do my best. Some of these I have heard before, but we all know how I go with Asian languages. I just sound confident enough. Um, so we have the Soviets and now the U.S. forces 
in uh, Incheon to accept the Japanese surrender just south of the 30th parallel. So Hodge actually becomes the U.S. head in Korea. And he goes about trying to, like, stupidly first, he tries to restore the colonial powers that were there. So the Japanese colonial administrators and the Koreans were like, no, no, thank you. So he was like, uh, never mind. I'm going to back off that. He, you know, did keep the Koreans who were in the government before in government power because, you know, it's not good to start fresh with a whole new crop of people running a government. It doesn't tend to work well if you have no government experience. I know. Numerous historical and modern accounts. <laughs> so, there are rebellions that pop up and you know on top of it the U.S. refuses to recognize the provisional government of what would be the People's Republic of Korea due to suspected communist sympathies and as anyone who studies the Cold War knows this is really the first kind of war proxy war that pops up because of the Cold War, I mean, besides the underlying issues that were happening before, because, you know, coming out of colonialism takes a lot of effort, as we've seen with numerous countries that have come out of colonialism. So we then have, in December 1945, a joint U.S.-Soviet Union commission at the Moscow Conference uh, basically saying, okay, we're going to jointly... It was kind of like the same thing they planned to do with like Berlin and Germany a little bit too. We're going to jointly govern you for about five years. And then after five years, we'll have you become independent. Which feels... To me, it feels very Treaty of Versailles after World War One, and you're just like, oh, that didn't work well. They probably are like, it's different people. It'll be fine. <laughs> We're like, but it's a different area. It'll try work here. It's like, we've tried this six times. So, uh, Koreans said uh, no, and riots broke out. So, the U.S. decided to uh, ban strikes and outlaw the People's uh, Republic of Korea government and their committees. So they're basically shutting this shit down. <laughs> yeah. Does it work? Because there's larger scale civilian unrest and they declared martial law. The U.S. did. Because remember, the U.S. Army's there. And you know... They were like, okay, this joint council's not working. The, like, I'm assuming all the uh, politicians and generals are in a room sitting there and like, it's not working. Let's just hold elections. 
Because that solves everything, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, however, the Soviet authorities and the Korean communists were like, uh, no, it would not be fair. And on top of it, many of those South Korean politicians actually boycotted as well. So it is not popular. But the U.S. probably said, fuck it. What harm could it do? <laughs> we are that kid who does the project the night before, doesn't practice this. I'll wing it. Um, <laughs> we all know that kid. Everybody's been that kid at least once, and it does not work out well. So they hold elections in the southern half of Korea, so the U.S. half, on May 10th, 1948. Um, they then hold parliamentary elections three months later in August. So it's it kind of works. Uh, they get a national political constitution on the 17th of July as well. And the general election had Sigmund Rhee as the president in July 20th, 1948. So they do elect a president. They kind of get a political constitution going. But you know how people didn't like it? The <laughs> it, it, was, it was determined or a lot of people believe that the Rhee regime really manipulated it to get into the power. But... This is where the Republic of Korea, which was now is South Korea, this is how it was established in August 1948. So we see the founding was super solid. Real, real solid. And so in the Soviet zone, they're like, huh, yeah, we're going to take this communist rebel, Kim Il-sung, and put him into power and as a communist government. So that's how we get North Korea. <laughs> mm. Welcome to the Cold War. <laughs> We're playing a game of battleship with real people's lives and not caring about the consequences. <laughs> and this would be like kind of where we see the idea of containment theory starting to form around this time, which containment theory was the U.S. idea. I believe the Dulles brothers, those assholes, um, developed it to basically contain the Soviet Union through friendly countries surrounding it. You know, because that's not going to cause problems. And that also, like, is similar to domino theory, whereas, which is going to drag, like, the U.S. back into Korea, whereas if one of these countries falls to become communist, then more countries will become communist. And more countries, you know, we all have seen dominoes when you stack them up and you hit them down. That's the theory. 
but with countries. <laughs> um, strangely, I think, personally, the Soviet Union withdraws their troops in 1948 and the U.S. withdraws in 1949. I mean, it makes sense because if you think, like, the Soviet Union had been involved in a war since the late 30s, they're tired. They got shit to rebuild. Stalin's purging people. It's it's a process. The U.S., um, they're right over in Japan, so it's not as far, you know. They're trying to rebuild Japan slash shape Japan. And oh yeah, remember I mentioned the Chinese? Let's talk about them again. <laughs> they're back. They never left. <laughs> so... You know, we have the Chinese Civil War going on between the communists and the nationalists. And we have the Korean, North Korean government, which will help uh, really fighting in Manchuria, which is close to Korea. And so we see him going back and forth. Well, once the end of the... Oh, fuck, I should have looked this up. When is the end of the Chinese Civil War? Is it 49? That's 50. Okay. Which, I mean, the Chi- so in case you were wondering how long the Chinese Civil War was, it went on from April 1927 to May 1950. So they've been fighting for a minute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, millions and millions of people died. So... The, because the Korea, North Koreans, the com, Korean communists helped them out and they're reaching the end. Like basically at this point, Mao is clearly the winner of this. It's China's clearly going to be communist and the nationalists flee to, I believe, Taiwan, which is why that's a whole issue. But I digress. So as China's trying to rebuild and beca- like cement themselves in power, they promised and donated to North Korea 2,000 railway cars worth of supplies and, you know, in returning, like, thousands of Koreans who fought for the Communist Party. They, on top of it, North Korea allowed for the Chinese Communists in Manchuria, like, a place to put non-combatants and communicate with the rest of China so it's like they they exchange this is why you won't see often that China says a lot about North Korea because the kind of buddy it's a they have a taunt relationship but it's like they at their foundings they were both pretty close and so we know that um the Communist Party in China sent back, like, weapons and their veterans. And basically, so you have between fifty to 70,000 Korean veterans who fought in the Civil War coming back to North Korea. Mm-hmm. And they would also, I think they also did financial support and other things, but yeah. So that's basically the build-up to this war. It's a geopolitical complex clusterfuck. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so they had been basically been colonized for years. So, and they're trying to create their own country. They've been divided by an arbitrary line. And, you know, so if you were in some of these villages, it, w- it wasn't really a choice. The line was drawn and you lived there. So this is where you live now. <laughs> so we have the real key leaders are Kim Il-sung, who is Kim Jong-un's grandfather who was very successful as a grill leader he got some training in russia he had actually been a made a major in the soviet army and you know you have the ultranationalists which is really centered around sigmund Rhee, who was educated in the u.s and you know helped run the dissident Korean provincial government in exile. Kim Il-sung goes up to uh, Stalin, you know, wanders up to his buddy Stalin and <laughs> with someone who's very, very paranoid. Yeah. Uh, Stalin was paranoid as fuck. Uh, that's what people don't always remember. Um, so Kim pushes for an invasion of the South. Stalin's like, okay, let's hold off. You guys aren't ready. Like, your forces aren't ready. And if the U.S. comes in, it's not going to be good. Because the Soviet army is still rebuilding. There's a lot of people in gulags at this point. Um, Because in case you didn't know or needed a reminder, the Soviet POWs, like, that were in other countries, like, on the other, like, German camps and stuff, they all went to Siberia because automatically they were thought to be uh, traitors to the state. So there's, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was, there's a lot of, like, also, I be- the Soviet Union lost the most people in World War II. Like, civilians, like, actual army, navy, and all that stuff. They had the highest casualty rate. I mean, part of it was that they did throw, like, people at the problem. It's not the best way to keep your casualty counts down. So, you know, so Kim took this as a, oh, okay, let's go and rebuild this army. It's going to be known as the... KPA that's going to be the North Korean army so he's like okay let's get this into a great fighting force modeled after the Soviets army cue in Mulan's I'll make a man out of you montage (laughs) but in the 20th century so the Chinese are you know get and at the same time they're getting more and more veterans back from the Chinese the Soviets are providing arms as well so by 1950 the North Koreans had a ton of like the army was so much better they have better equipment they're better trained they're doing better militarily wise than the South so 
Kim Il-sung goes up to Moscow in March and April of 1950. They, him and Stalin, I'm guessing they're in a, a room where it's like the circle table and there's a map and they're like pushing things around, planning out the invasion. <laughs> I, I don't know. That might just be like a early modern medieval way, Renaissance way that people planned wars. I just assume that's how it is. Like when you push, you know, you push them around the map, you got the little thing. So, June 25th, 1950, the North Koreans go across the 38th parallel, just lighting it up with artillery fire. And they, like the main force was 53,000 men. It's their I Corps, Corps, it's not Corps. <laughs> It is. Um, so the North Korean I Corps drives across the Imjin River towards Seoul. So the se- the oh, I guess I guess they were just one. It's just court one core. So Corps two, um, which is around fifty four thousand soldiers, then goes and attacks along the wider axis, going through cities. So they're basically just spreading out in a semicircle, hitting. Cities, Cheonghon, Inji, Hongcheon, and just going all the way down the east coast towards Kangjun. Uh, they enter Seoul on June 28th. So, like three days later, they're like, Sup, bitches? Yeah. <laughs> but they did not get a quick surrender of the government or disintegration of the South Korean army which was the goal. They were like, basically, we're going to show this big force of power. Y'all going to be like, okay, you're, we give up. Which is not a, I mean, it wasn't a bad plan, tell you the truth. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I guess you could, but the confidence, you know, I was to say uh, average white man energy, but yes. Yeah. So the remnants of Roka, which is the South Korean forces, decided to form a defensive line along the Han River. And so they did the river and then the East Coast Road to basically stop the North Koreans from advancing further south. So immediately they were like, hey, Big Brother US, we need like help, please. Linda, help. Yeah. They contact good old Truman. I'm sure it was much more like, hey, assholes, you did this. Come help. That's what I would do. But (laughs) this is why I cannot be in the army. My mouth is too sassy. Uh, so Truman was like, hey, MacArthur, get munitions over there. Uh, use air cover to get U.S. citizens out. Which I was like, I appreciate, but you also created this situation. So you should, like, if you're going to help, help. Because they would just, I mean, they're all, you have to think also, there's a lot of, U.S. Navy 
and military over in Japan, which is pretty close. Uh, Truman was like kind of smart. He did not want to, this is actually kind of smart. He did not want a declaration of war. So you have to, for the US, you have to go before Congress to declare war. Ask them to declare war, there's a vote. So, and that takes a lot of convincing because yeah that's what we've been doing uh world war ii is technically the last war we have been in they did not declare a war as a police action Everything since has been uh, like a police action. Yeah. So, yeah, Congress has not, I don't, I believe has not declared war since World War II. So it's also because there's a lot more strings attached when you declare war. A lot more things have to go through Congress. As we all know, those bitches take some time. So instead, Truman goes to the U.N., for a sanction against North Korea and the Soviets. The UN called for the invasion to halt on the 25th and then was like, hey, UN members, you have to go assist South Korea on the 27th. Remember, the North Koreans make it into Seoul on the 28th, so they're clearly like deuces. Um, <laughs> don't give a fuck. And this, a lot of stuff that would be happening has to take place in the UN, has to take place in the Security Council, which the Soviet Union's on, the US, the British, the French. I'm missing one. There, there are, uh, there are several seats that are permanent like okay, there we go there's five permanent ones the French Russia so the Soviet Union UK yeah, and the US and then China the issue was was China or Taiwan going to be on the Security Council because the nationalists are in Taiwan so <laughs> it's a big it's a bot it's literally a shit show and then there's some rotating members so other countries are on there but the the big ones are the five permanent members um yeah because the whole issue over admitting communist china to the un is the whole deal right now so the soviet union's boycotting so it does allow actually the u.s to push more through because of it um but it's just it adds to the shit showy nature of this <laughs> you know and the u.s public congress is like no go go support south korea the uh, administration actually had to realize okay we don't have a good enough military power to go meet this invasion 
we do have one of our top generals, General MacArthur, um, there. So he sent three divisions from Japan, but if you put ground forces, they're like, okay, if we get defeated now, we actually have men on the ground. So that's a lot of problems. We have around eight weeks uh, near Osan, the Kum River, through Taeyon, south to Taeyu, where there's U.S. soldiers, some being killed, some di- some fleeing. It's, you know, we're still struggling with the offset of World War Two because we don't have enough weapons. Um, there's, like, not enough troops. They, I mean, the amount of troops they sent for it the Koreans, North Koreans, were more prepared. And, like, the wavering nature of, like, leadership. Plus, you have the threat of refugees coming through. So you have refugees coming when you're trying to fight a war. So the refugees are fleeing south. And then this is where, like, a big tactic was guerrilla warfare on top of it. So are the refugees refugees? Are they not refugees? Are they combatants? It starts to bring up these questions. So this kind of culminates into attacks on Korean civilians. We see this um, hundreds of refugees at a railroad viaduct near uh, Nongri. It's west of the Nantong River during the last week of July, so there was, I mean, it was basically a massacre there because there was confusion. So it's, it's, this war is less clear, I think, than, like, World War One, World War Two is, like, a lot clearer on what's happening, who's combatants, who's not. And a lot of these people had just fought a total war, so your mindset's very much still there. Yeah. Um, finally, in the first weeks of August, we finally get the United Nations Command, which will be known as like UNC. Uh, we see the slowing of North Koreans as MacArthur kind of redesignates, and they start to figure out what they're going to have to do. This started in June. It's August. Right? So we have a starting of the on the southern side successes with the Eighth Army, uh, led by Lieutenant General Walton H. Walker, and Roka, which is the South Korean Army, led by Major General Chong Il Wok. Um, they basically start rallying and getting more successes, starting to lead a charge, leading them back north. So they one of the key ports kind of coming in for the 8th army is Pusan and you know it's closer to the like Japanese it, there's tons of people coming in so they really need to protect this port and this is one of the like bigger areas that they're trying to protect so 
especially because that's where the U.S. is getting their supplies from Japan and coming across the Pacific. So there, Walker brings in Sherman and Pershing medium tanks, rocket launchers, artillery pieces, anti-aircraft guns, and close air support aircraft. So this is really where... (laughs) I know. Nope. So... With the UN now in like kind of coalition now in control, they continue in September. Like they're getting an order of advance against the Ningtong River, like Tegu Line. It's the Pusan perimeter, so they're building a perimeter around so they can keep this open and keep getting supplies. And this is where a lot of coastal anchors that will keep expanding, expanding. We have the Battle of Tabu Dong in August, mid-August um, of that year, where the North Korean First Division and the or the South Korean First Division and the U.S. 27th Regimental Combat Team actually defeat the North Koreans' main arbored thrust towards Tagu, towards that perimeter line, and so we see basically. They're starting to get pushed back in September. The North Korean had two of its corps reduced to 60,000 men. Its tanks destroyed and pushed well away from that borderline. So it seems like, okay, we're getting some movement. We're getting some traction after the North Koreans basically swept down the peninsula almost completely. The shift in this war is by the appearance of the X Corps and Inchon at Inchon. So MacArthur, famous World War II general, like led, I believe, on both fronts. And he was like, you know what? I need an amphibious li- amphibious 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 (laughs) i haven't seen it spelled in so long it's like oh god amphibious landing deep behind enemy lines so think of along the lines of like a d-day kind of scenario where you're gonna start cutting them off and getting further in and he actually started planning as early as july so yeah. He worked with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They determined that the 1st Marine Division and the 8th Army remaining infantry division, the 7th, would go on this. It includes some South Korean Marine and infantry units and a other backloading of U.S. support troops. It was called X-Corps, which, badass name. Or like a Marvel like company. (laughs) It's like, it seems like a comic book thing. And this would be led by Major General Edward M. Almond. MacArthur's chief of staff. (laughs) Did not plan that. Enjoyed it. Uh, We got double almonds in our episodes. So at this point, because they're going so far behind the lines... The resistance is so thin 
just because they don't have the manpower, but they are stubborn as fuck. So, you know, we have the X Corps entering Seoul on September 25th. So they managed to retake Seoul, the capital. Then the bulk of the 7th Division advance onto Suwon and reaches the 8th Army on the 6th. So you see them kind of slowly congealing and becoming one massive army retaking their southern half of the peninsula. And on the 26th, MacArthur and Sigmund Rhee actually go into the uh, Capitol building in Seoul and declare the South Korea's liberated. It's great. Everything's done. Yeah, definitely, definitely not done. <laughs> they keep pushing the North Koreans back up north, but the they're taking thousands of South Koreans hostage and as slave laborers or they executed thousands of people um, such as at Sejon where they massacred 5,000 civilians Mm -hmm. so on top of that the South Korean army and national police aren't actually doing much better because any suspected communists they find or even think about it yeah they're gonna yeah similar things happen it's not great And the U.S., you know, the U.S. is bombing. It's, it's a clusterfuck. Uh, It's been determined that the last two weeks of September saw atrocities like those in Europe during the 30 years war of the 17th century, which is so bad. It's, it's, it's revenge. It's just vicious for vicious sake. It's killing civilians, destroying things. Not great. Doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Easily. Um, wiping villages off the maps that have been there for, like, centuries, millennia. So MacArthur is like, you know what? Fuck you. Let's go into North Korea. So they actually go across the 38th parallel, go deep into North Korea. So they just keep following them. They actually get close to the Manchurian border. So the border with China. And China was like, we will defend ourselves. Back the fuck off. Yeah. I'm assuming they use political language, but basically it was like, fuck the, back the fuck off. Um, so mid-October and still like, this is 1950, like this is a three year long war. We're in year one. Um, so mid-October Truman meets MacArthur on Wake Island and he's like, MacArthur's like, it'll be done by Christmas never say this shit because that's what they said about world war one and guess what it was not (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have we not learned from the Soviet Union's five-year plan? It does not happen in five years. So, in November, the Chinese was like... <laughs> so, as soon as they, like, had determined that, like, the timeline to end the war was, like, Christmas. So, basically, end of year. November that year, the Chinese opened up their armies to the North Koreans. <laughs> and the UN forces were like, what? So, they spent their in a year defending the line to the south of Seoul. So they got pushed all the way back. Yeah, so we have the push of the North Korean South, the US, South Korean UN forces pushing them almost to China, and then them getting pushed all the way back down, like halfway down the South. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have... Like, I mean, imagine how defeating that is. Like, you were almost done, and then this shit happens. So, the new field commander, General Ridgway, picked up his, like, took over, and they began their slow advance north in the spring of 1951. We have them back at the allies, the UN, South Korean allies, back at the 38th parallel. And then the Chinese launched another offensive. (laughs) Yeah. So we have a British 19th Brigade almost completely taken out at the Imogen River. Um, The 27th Commonwealth Brigade fighting as well, but they held the line somehow. But they realize you're like, hey, we probably shouldn't go north of this line again because it didn't go well. Yeah, so they just basically sit at the 38th parallel. And for the next two years, just fighting along the border of it. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
that's uh that's what i think the show mash really shows well is how much of it is a waiting game and how much like you're so mad that you're stuck there fun fact the tv show mash was on air longer than the korean war happened <laughs> it was on a long time yeah mm-hmm so this is where we get these heavily fortified positions you know you got artillery mines wire if you everybody has that good image of the trench warfare of the first and second well really the first world war kind of think of like how they built like basically built up along this line they both sides really had to focus on air power because think about it you're not really moving very far so if you can drop bombs behind enemy lines that'll help and this is where the u.s really succeeds we're very good in the air we our heavy bombers would take out cities and industrial plants in north korea and attack the transport systems that so basically the chinese fighting on the side of the north koreans used pack horses as the way to transport their shit <laughs> probably be safe but think about it like how are you gonna tell you can walk in different paths you don't need roads for pack horses as much so you can go under tree cover more. Um, this is really, we see the American B-52 bomber and like our, their lighter uh, planes around them get, starting to get challenged by the Russians MIG-15 fighters, which were flown by the Chinese. And they actually started defeating the Americans in the air until, yeah. Americans introduced the F-86 Sabre tip balance, and it was basically, it becomes the first supersonic air combat combat fighting, and uh, America regained its supremacy, which is really interesting. See, that's the interesting part of war that I like, is, like, the technological advances. It's horrible the damage they cause now, but, like, the innovation is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And then in the Navy, the I mean, the U.S., the Russian Navy got pretty much taken out several times. <laughs> because for a brief Russian history, we had the Russo-Japanese War where the Japanese humiliated the Russians. World War I, the a Russian Civil War, which led to the Soviet Union, then World War II. So, yeah, it's definitely a lot. So, they are working on their navy, navy, but the U.S. is basically taking out. And even the North Koreans' uh, torpedo boats were no match for it. The U.S. the U.N. group firepower were like bye bye. So, North Korea had a tight blockade around it, so they couldn't get any. Basically, all supplies had to come in through its China connection. 
Um, so because in mid 1951, they're not moving anywhere. Nothing's happening. They decide to go and talk, talk it out. So they go and begin armistice talks. It takes over two years. Like it doesn't go well. Mm-hmm. So imagine you're stuck fight like especially like the UN soldiers you're stuck there especially I'm thinking like so the US and the Soviets agreed to this so say you're British you're from Canada you're from Australia like elsewhere you're stuck here and your country like really just decided to follow US action UN action and your country didn't even make this decision like to divide this country I Mm -hmm. oh yeah so the real the real sticking point is the tens of thousands communist prisoners held in camps on Koje Island off the coast of South Korea you know this is going to come up repeatedly. Keeping people in camps isn't a great idea. Doesn't work well. But I mean, I get it. They're like to the they're like, "Okay, we need them back." Like and so really the really big sticking point is over these POWs. Um so this would also lead to thousands of POWs unwillingly uh, that were unwilling to be repatriated. So unwilling to go back to their country of origin. So maybe they were, they're now disillusioned or whatnot. They don't want to. So there were actually a bunch of mutinies in the Koje camps before they figured out a way to basically repatriate those that wanted to go get asylum for the others so it's not it's not going well then on July 1953 basically when they had a ceasefire and it's called Operation Big Switch where they swapped POWs I just love that it's called Operation Big Switch. I was like, obviously, that's what it is. <laughs> you know someone's in there and they're like trying to think of a cool name. It's like, just fucking call it Operation Big Switch. It's going to be a big switch. Um, so they, so that during the negotiations that led to this, it would be the revised Geneva Convention of 1949, which required, quote, any detaining authority, end quote, uh, that held POWs, return them to their homelands as rapidly as possible when a war ended. It's basically like, hey, war's done, return the people. It's done. 
yeah, sadly, no. Um, and this all-for-all all policy really could force some people, like, like I mentioned earlier with the Soviet Union, some of them did not want to go back because they knew what they were facing. They basically knew they were going back to a death sentence. So they didn't want to go back, but they, like, you have to do it. No, I think they called them death trains, too. The ones that took them. <laughs> yeah, I think that's... It might have been the unofficial, if I remember from what my friends who studied that period said. Um, and, you know... This is... Really... The early reports of, like, atrocities happening to POWs on both sides, really heavily on the North Korean sides, leads to this issues. The South Korean government really was opposed to complete and involuntary repatriation because some of these detainees were actually South Koreans who had been forced to fight with the North Koreans. So they were forced into it. So they're like, we can't send our citizens there because they're clearly going to be murdered and um the north koreans were like who had much like who were responsible like oh yeah oh so there's a lot of people being like uh 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 what should we do the chinese however knew that oh they've been here the whole time they're ha oh they they've been fighting that's where most of the supplies are coming through china you know they're hanging out so the, the their leaders knew um some people would refuse repatriation because they were impressed so they basically were soldiers from the nationalist army that they forced into this war because yeah that shit happens think of like a draft impressment is like a draft but someone shows up and says well, you're doing this now. The most common way people think of it is uh, the U.S. fought... Part of the reason the U.S. fought wars with Britain was because the British would impress uh, American soldiers onto their ships. So they, like, a uh, British man of war would come up to an American, like, merchant vessel and be like, well, we need sailors. You're, you're a member of this. And then just take their sailors. <laughs> That's which is what the Chinese did, the communists did with the nationalist army. So they were like, we're not going to make it mandatory because they're just going to cause more problems. Because think about their veterans, they fought, their experience with this and whatnot. So everybody's like, okay, we'll do a POW name exchange and numbers and the categories. So let's get to the tallies. <laughs> Be prepared for the it's going to get worse section. So, the U.S. Armed Forces had 11,500 men missing in action. Communists only have 3,198 Americans in custody, as well as 1,219 other United Nations POWs, mostly British and Turk, Turkish. So that's a big difference. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah. So, South Koreans, an estimated 88,000 missing in action. And they only got 7,142 names that were in the camps. I think the question is, I don't know if they exchanged um, those that had been there that were either murdered or died from, you know, torture, execution, starvation, mistreatment, infection, like all of that. So the allies were like, oh shit, this is, the, the treatment was way worse than we thought. Probably most of the missing in action had died in fighting. Um, and, you know, you, they think about 15,000 died in communist hands, which would, they figure out um, all but 2,000 th- South Koreans had died by, like, the torture, the execution, the starvation, and all the problems that would come up with it. But still that be fucked up it's gonna get worse (laughs) that we're there at that time that's what I think it is I don't think it's total list I think that's just who was there so Mm-hmm. So, we have estimated numbers of the POWs in the UN committee custody. So, early on, it was, like, too low or too high. So, they were, like, 90,000 or 170,000. Officialists now have determined it was 95,531 North Koreans, 20,700 Chinese, and 16,243 South Koreans for a total of It's crazy because, like, that's, and I mean, that's their, like, the U, the United Nations list of POWs. So, um, apparently around 40,000 of the missing men were South Korean who had already passed loyalty investigations. It would not be considered to go to North Korea. Uh, Truman ruled in January 1952 that no POW in UN custody would be forced to return to North Korea or China against their will, which is actually, I think, fair. Um, Or, you know, re-educate 
them. <laughs> I always love that phrase. <laughs> so those that chose to return north would continue on a one-for-one -one basis until they got all 12,000 ally POWs returned. Which, again, fair. Very, very pragmatic. And, you know, this process required extensive screening of individuals about their preference and basically created a shit ton of problems in the camps. Uh, this is really like kind of a hidden thing people don't realize like POWs revolting were another aspect of the war happening behind the lines so not only are you manning the the 38th parallel you also have to deal with the POWs fighting and trying to revolt and all that and on top of it you have guerrilla warfare of those in the southern provinces attacking um we see the most effective in 1951 with Van Fleek, U.S. General, ordered uh, Major General Pak Sunyup, uh, one of South Korea's most effective officers, to break up the guerrilla activity. They go through from December 1951 to March 1952. They killed 11,000 partisan and sympathizers, captured 9,916 more. Uh, which is really suggesting a scorched earth policy, which was not what I believe he was asked to do. But, yeah, this, uh, you know, this uh, surpasses the previous war atrocity by the UN un uh, unit, uh, the execution of 800 to 1,000 villagers at Kongzhen in February 1951. So... No side did great. Both of us were real bad. No. No, no, no. It doesn't. So we see the demilitarized zone, or DMZ, which is still there, established on the border. Everybody kind of backs up a little bit. And the UN determines to set up a commission to supervise the armistice. We had around 100,000 British servicemen, the Brits, in the war. And on top of, you know, in July 1951, a Canadian brigade, some more Brit the British, the Australians, the New Zealands, the Indians, which is the Commonwealth Division as well. So it's not just, this is what I think is interesting, it's not just the U.S. in there because it's a U.N. It's kind of like the first U.N. action. There are a lot more people involved than you thought. So, let's end this war. Quote, unquote. Technically, no. But that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, so, from September to November 1952, the Chinese are still trying to push the allies back to the 30th parallel and as they're raging through you know we keep having these short fires like all these things um and you know as everybody's losing men 
we have the 8th Army in just mid-November lose 10,000 men. The Chinese lost 15,000 men. And the Chinese actually go to President-elect Eisenhower. And, you know, they're, like, hoping they can convince him not to go on a major offensive in the 53. Eisenhower and Secretary of State Dulles, yes, the one that Dulles Airport is named after, him and his brother, are very... Yes. Um, the Dulles brothers, as one of my international studies professors says, she believes that they're still, they have their heads and they're still spewing out policy in the basement of uh, the Pentagon. <laughs> they basically, if you guys are Patreon members and you've heard the Guatemala episodes, you'll know the Dulles brothers basically led U.S. foreign policy from, I think, like the 40s on until they died. And... You know, one was the head of the CIA, one was the Secretary of State a lot, or in the State Department a lot. They, you know, the Dulles brother who was in the CIA actually led the commission on JFK's assassination. He did not like JFK. JFK did not like him. Take with that what you will. Um, (laughs) But if you read up on the Dulles brothers, they're fascinating the amount of shit they're in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they're, like, not even hiding the fact that they're smoking their cigars and twirling their mustaches. So. Uh, Dulles and Eisenhower were like, yeah, this we gotta get out of this war. It's not good for our, our national security. And, you know, they realize, okay, China is gonna be this big power in Asia, and Korea is only one aspect of this that if we can get out of it it'll be great especially because you know the public is not a fan of it no it's a lot of taxes it's a lot of losing like the draft is involved in this I mean I had family members that fought in Korea you know so it's not popular Dulles goes for negotiations. He's like, okay, voluntary repatriation involves screening by an international agency, not just the U.S. South Korean teams, which I'm like, okay, fair. So they had the U.N. and and the International Committee of the Red Cross doing an exchange of sick and disabled POWs, kind of being like, okay, let's get this started. Eisenhower's like, yeah, let's go. And it's like, it's basically this goodwill test. And it, it did work, actually. On top of it, March 5th, 1953, Stalin died. So that... <laughs> um, so Stalin died. And right after that, the Politburo uh, voted that we got to end this Korean War. It's not worth it. Mao Zedong knew that, okay, we can't keep this going without the support of the Soviet Union. So, because, again, China is still recovering from a 20-plus year civil war. You have to remember, the country's supporting, like, everybody supporting this is pretty much recovering from devastating wars. 
Yeah. Um, so the Chinese were like, okay, we'll take voluntary repatriation. So that's good. And they start, you know, doing, working on screening and all of that. They did agree to the exchange of sick and disabled POWs, which was good. Um, however, Ri comes back, you know, the leader of South Korea. He's like, um, he, he kind of refused to sur- publicly surrender his march north and unifying position. That was his, what he was going with. However, we have heard privately, like they, it was shown privately, that he hinted he might accept an armistice if the, there were seriously serious commitments by the U.S., um, uh, including this, um, uh, like an ambiguous mutual security alliance, kind of like, if they come back, you have to come back. And $1 billion in economic aid. <laughs> Yeah, which, I mean, think about it, both, like, the peninsula is decimated, kind of makes sense, but I just love these, yeah, 53. Oh, yeah, let me, let me do inflation calculator real quick. 53. Oh shit, how many zeros is that? I think I got it. It's. One million eight. I think I need it. Okay, I need to add. Yeah, I gotta add one more zero. Calculate! (laughs) <laughs> so it's an 866% increase yeah 9.667 million dollars yeah so just chump change guys it's fine Um, you know the Chinese were still thinking hey for us to get what we want it is really to battle it out on out in territory so they keep fighting we then see the armistice like, we had this initial, like, agreeing of the POWs and all of that and the sticking points. Well, then they moved to a military armistice commission, which was 10 officers representing each of the belligerents. Or basically, um, the combatants. A, new, a neutral nation's supervisory commission, which was Sweden, Switzerland, Poland, and Czechoslovakia. I mean, some of those I get, some of those I don't. Uh, a, n- <laughs> a neutral nations reparation commission which was Sweden, Switzerland, Poland, Czechoslovakia and India who would be the custodian of the POWs mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, they're in the Commonwealth, so they have troops there, but they're also, like, the closest country there, so they can, like, more likely supervise. So we have from August 5th to September 6th, uh, around 75,823 communist soldiers and civilians uh, returned to their regimes, which was really all but 5,640 of them. So, like, there's 5,640 of them that stayed. And then 7,862 South Korean soldiers, 3,597 U.S. soldiers, and 1,377 other nationalities, soldiers of other nationalities, including some civilians, returned to U.N. control. So they did their swap. And this, I mean... You know, it was so many things. You have the POW stripping off their, like, capitalist uniforms and, like, singing to March-approved songs from the communist side. So I'm just like, oh, my God. Those who refused repatriation, actually, uh, the handling of it turned into somewhat of a clusterfuck. As, you know... Agents among the communist POWs and interrogators, like, just were horrible to the Indians that were, like, supervising this. And, you know, really only around 628 Chinese and Koreans changed their minds and went north. Um, You have 221,000 that had actually returned to UN control. So, like... It's interesting to see, like, what goes back and forth. Uh, Most of those who didn't repatriate settle in North Korea or Taiwan. And, yeah. Again, Taiwan comes up because it's technically China. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And most... Oh. uh, For the Armistice Agreement, actually, the U.S organized an international conference in Geneva um, for everybody to come up and talk about the political future of Korea. There was no agreement. There still isn't. Yeah. Um, Basically, you have the battlement back and forth. They have... uh, This is the one really cool thing I found on, on the Wikipedia article. I know I've talked your ear off about this but it was hard to cut this is cut down too um mm-hmm. yeah um okay, let me find where it is it's just okay so there is actually set up um to find remains still of those missing. So there are 416 Korean unknown soldiers buried at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Hawaii. Um, We also have records that indicate that 
uh, of the names transmitted between the lists, only 858 of the 1300 were correct. And we have an additional uh, 4,167 containers of returned remains. They have identified 4,219 individuals. They also, of those around, like a little under 3,000 were identified from the U.S. They only could give them, only could give uh, identified 416 by name. And from 1996 to 2006, North Korea recovered um, 220 remains near the border. Near the Chinese-Korean border. So, <laughs> in case you're wondering what happened to some of those people, they still are finding remains from the war. It's, they're still, so they're still trying to return people to their homelands and to their families. But... That is a brief history of the Korean War and hopefully explains a little bit why it's so contentious. And like I said, if you're interested in it, definitely delve deeper. There's a ton of great sources. There's a ton of really, really good firsthand accounts, you know, so definitely delve deeper. But I, I mean, we've, it's like an hour 30 recording, so <laughs> it's going to be a long one. <laughs> mm-hmm. I always love that. This, this is the light version. Yeah. So what do you think? What did you think? Yeah. Yeah. And like Vietnam. It's, it's 
fascinating just because we it, it's kind of the first time not the first time well yeah it's kind of the first time with u.s supremacy in the global stage that you see the country doing this because you have the spanish-american war but i wouldn't say the u.s was a major player it was like we were on the up and up when we did it but we're not in the american century yet like we will be after the second world war and you see definitely the u.s learning from britain and how to how to stick our nose in everybody's business (laughs) and We learned from our father, a.k.a. the British Empire. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, Kelly, do you want to tell everyone where to find your wonderful podcast that is definitely cheerier than this? Yeah, and next week I'll be back with another friend talking about other horrible things, probably. Yay! Okay, bye! Uh.